All right, we are in Revelation chapter 2. I'm not used to being in one chapter for so long. Um, But we have four churches here in chapter 2, and so we're taking a look at a church a week. I will be starting in verse 12 today. If you remember, when Jesus appears to John, he tells him that he is to write down the things which have been, or which he has seen, the things which are, and the things that must take place after this. And that's really the whole breakdown of the book of Revelation. So the things which he has seen are chapter 1. The things which are are chapters 2 and 3. These are the churches. And if you remember, it's not just the seven churches that were being written to then. These seven churches represent all churches throughout all time. It's the entire church age. Not only that, it is the people within each one of those churches. So every church falls into one of these seven categories. But I think also every family, every marriage, every individual falls into these categories as well. Okay, And so that's why I think there's great application as we look at these churches. Uh, we're not just slowing down looking at one a week uh, to stall or you know, fill time. It's that each one of them, I think, has great application to us. Right, That we can look at it and say, These things are things that we need to at least be careful of, even if we don't see them in our lives. We need to be aware of them, the things that they were challenged by are the same things we are individually challenged by and we are challenged by as a church. So, so far we've looked at the church of Ephesus. Uh, If you remember, Ephesus was a very large, wealthy city. It had a a huge amount of uh, art and culture. It was known to be this great place of entertainment and all these things, but it was also a very wicked city. And so within there is this church that was doing well. It's a church that had a lot of history to it. We see it many times in Scripture, uh, in the New Testament. Uh, But they had lost their focus. All the things that they had going for them, they had left their first love. And so while they are very solid in the Word, and they, they exposed people that were false teachers, and people that said they were disciples and they were not, and they did all these things... Uh, they'd become very legalistic, and they had left their first love. And that word, or the phrase there for first love, means love of the highest order. The greatest amount of love that they'd ever been shown, of course, like all of us, is Jesus. And so they had departed from, from him and exchanged their love, their first love, for a love that was about ministry, and a love that was about rules, and a love that was about putting other people in their place. And so the Lord deals with them. And that's really what the question that came in was regarding the, uh, the church of Ephesus. And it's neat because though I missed it at the time, we're backtracking to get there, it actually uh, applies a lot to what we're going to look at today with the church of Pergamos. So the question uh, that was for Ephesus is that the Lord uh, commends them for being those who cannot abide evil, or they don't put up with people who are evil. So th- with that in mind... What's that tightrope that we're supposed to walk where we don't tolerate evil, but we don't become legalistic, right? So, and we've talked about this at other times, but it's a great question. We're to be people that love righteousness and holiness, but not falling into this thing where we got a whole ton of rules that we're putting on other people, right? We all need to have personal guidelines. We need the Holy Spirit to show us, okay, even if this is all right for everybody else, it's not all right for you. 
But the moment I think that that's the source of my righteousness, my little rule, my individual law that the Lord may have shown me, if I think that's the source of my righteousness, I'm missing the whole point. And when I start to take that, believing it's the source of righteousness and put it on other people and that they should do it too, that's legalism, right? Now, where does it come in as far as putting up with evil or dealing with evil? And the example they gave was actually uh, other believers or even other pastors that cuss a lot and swear a lot. Well, um, it's important, the word or the phrase that's those who are evil, specifically means those who are leading others astray. So though somebody might cuss or they might do things that I I don't like or that bother me, they're not necessarily evil. They're not trying to lead people astray by those things. It might be a sign of their weakness or of an immaturity or just a hang-up that they have, but they're not evil. They just have a hang-up, right? They're not trying to lead people astray. So I think that's an important thing for us to realize, too. That we deal with people all the time, especially, you know, when it comes to non-believers, non-believers act like non-believers. That shouldn't shock us, right? Um, it's funny because when I was involved with the police department as a chaplain and, and just working in construction since I was 18, you know, surrounded by a lot of harsh language. Uh, I've got this friend that I've gotten connected with over the, the last year, and it was funny because he was telling me some story, and he stops himself and says, like, oh, I almost swore. And I, I'm like, okay. And he goes, what I was going to say, what I stopped myself from saying is, and then he tells me everything that he, was, that he stopped himself from. And I'm like, but you just said it. And he goes, oh. <laughs> I think we need to meet people where they're at. Certainly when they don't know the Lord, we shouldn't be surprised when they act like they don't know the Lord. And I even think with believers, we need to have some grace, again, there's a big difference between somebody having a hang-up and somebody that is trying to lead people astray. With Ephesus, why that was commended to them and saying, you don't put up with evil, and it's connected to those who say they are apostles and are not, because they're leading people astray. Right? So, so that's how that works out. That's a great question, and I think it's a good thing that we need to keep coming back to. You know, if I started to see my own rules as being a, a source of my righteousness, if I'm keeping them. Or do I know that because of my unrighteousness, the Lord has to give me these guidelines, right? Okay, so after Ephesus, we looked at Smyrna, and that was last week. Again, Smyrna was a very large city, wealthy, had a lot of things happening in it. But within this church is the church of uh, this persecuted church, because Smyrna was a town that wanted to be seen as a model city of Rome. And, and the Christians would not do the things that they were asking. They wanted to see everybody worshiping Caesar and to give this little pinch of incense on a fire and say, Caesar is Lord. The Christians wouldn't do that. And so because of that, this great persecution came upon them. Now, the church doesn't receive any rebuke from the Lord, but there is a warning telling them to stop fearing the things that are to come. Right? So things were bad already, but they were going to get worse. In fact, he says that the devil is going to be the one who's coming against them, that he's going to persecute them, put them in jail, and, and all of these things. So this is a very real spiritual attack. Uh, There's also physical. And, he's, and they could see something was coming. They knew that some horrible thing was going to go from bad to worse. And the Lord just tells them, stop fearing those things. 
I'm going to be with you through it all. I'm the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Nothing's out of my control, right? And so he's encouraging them to just not fear the things that are going to take place. So now today we come to Pergamos. Like I said, it, it has some similarities to Ephesus. Um, these, all these cities kind of have some uh, similarities, uh, but I think it's got some great application for us. So let's pray one more time, and we will get in to chapter 2, verse 12. God, we thank you so much for your word. And again, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive all that you have. Lord, we don't want to miss a thing. We don't want to simply look at this as a history lesson and things that took place long ago to a church that is far away. But Lord, we want it to apply to our hearts today. And we give you ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to back up just a little bit because there's this cool little fact, and I I forgot to talk about it last week. And uh, the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church, it's the only one of the seven that still exists. Isn't that amazing? This church, it was under such persecution. It seemed like they were just going to be extinguished. The other six are gone. But there is still a church in Smyrna. And that has continually faced persecution of one kind or another throughout its, its, its existence. Uh, very short periods where they weren't being persecuted, but even today face persecution for their faith. So, all right. Just thought that was worth throwing out there. So chapter 2, verse 12. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things, says he, who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality." Just as we talked about last week, Smyrna being or wanting to be a model city of Rome, um, there were other cities that wanted the same thing. And they would actually compete with one another for certain rights and certain abilities to either build temples or enact certain laws. They were kind of seen like test subjects of, of Roman culture, right? And it was a big deal because they would also get money, they would get certain uh, extra rights. And While Smyrna was into that, probably one of their biggest competitors was the next city over, Pergamos. In fact, Pergamos, in a lot of ways, was way ahead of them. Uh, Pergamos, also, very wealthy city. And remember, all these cities are on a trade route and going in the same order that they're addressed. But it was a powerful city because it had such strong connections to Rome and Roman politics and leaders. Uh, It considered itself to be a place of intelligence and education. It had the largest library in that region of the world. And, uh, and really, pretty much whatever they asked Rome for, they got. So that's how strong their connection is. If they said, oh, we need better roads, or oh, we need better this, better that, that Rome would take care of it because they loved Pergamos. They had an abundance of temples. In fact, a temple to almost every Roman god somewhere, but they had... 
uh, the largest was the temple to Zeus. And then we talked about that Smyrna had the, the, the temple to uh, Caesar. Well, Pergamos had three of them. They had three different temples to Caesar. Uh, and of course, with each temple, there was great immorality. I think a lot of times we forget that. You know, we go, oh, okay, that was ancient pagan worship. But each one of those temples had a, a whole list of, of immoral things they did. It's how they brought people in. You know, they would have the priestesses that were just prostitutes, and they'd go out in the city, they'd bring people in. And it's how the temple made money. And that's just one way. There were lots of others. And so with each temple, there was a, a huge amount of, of sin and immorality. And, and so there within this town, who is also and has also faced great persecution because they won't give that little pinch of incense and say Caesar, Caesar is Lord either, uh, is this church. And, and the Lord just points out, and he does this with all the churches, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I think the first part of that, and again, he, this is what he says to all the churches, I know. And for some reason, to me, that's great comfort, that the Lord can look at this church and he can look at our lives and go, I know. I know what you're dealing with. I know where you dwell. I know the people in your lives. I know the difficulties you're facing. I know your works. I know what you've done, and I know what you're doing, and I know your heart. I know, right? I think a lot of times we can forget that, or at least we know it in our heads, but we don't believe it in our hearts, right? That we go, Lord, I know you love me, and I know you're here for me, and I know you care about me, but we can still feel a little detached. You know, like, like for some reason, he doesn't know every detail. And he's reminding the church, and I believe he's reminding us, yes, he does. He knows every detail. Now, again, these people have, have been in a tough place. He knows their works, and they've been doing a good work. He doesn't say that in any kind of sarcastic way. He knows the things that they've been doing. They've been loving Jesus. They've been loving people. They've been a good example to the church, and they've been doing it for a long time. And he even sees the things that they don't. Again, this is an important part, because he isn't just saying, I know the things you know. He's saying, I know all the things you don't know. I know that you dwell where Satan's throne is. It's kind of a big deal. And, and again, just the weird way I think, and I picture the people reading this going, what? What? Where Satan's throne is? Okay, we knew it was a hard town. We knew it was a tough place to do ministry. A lot of stuff makes sense right now, right? This is where Satan's throne is. Now, some people go, well, no, it's not actually referring to literal Satan's throne, in the temple of Zeus was this great black altar, and it was shaped just like a throne. And people say, oh, well, that's what it's referring to. Maybe. But right behind that, he says, where Satan dwells. Well, there's no question about what that means. Satan uh, is a fallen angel. He's, he's actually not as special as he tries to make people think he is. He's a created being, like all the angels. He cannot be all places at once. He's not omnipresent. He's not all-knowing. He can only be in one place at a time. So somewhere on the earth, he is. That's it. And at the time that this letter was written, he was in Pergamos. He'd set it up as his base of operations. And, and even as you look through Scripture, New and Old Testament, we see that the kingdom of hell is structured much like a military, that there's 
Satan's in charge. He's got demons under him who deal with other demons, and they're over certain areas. They have certain authorities, right? That there's an organization to it. And so that's what's being referred to here, is that your town where you're living is where Satan has set up his base of operations. Now, again, people get all worked up about that. And I think people, not all believers, but I think there are those believers that get really spun out over the idea of, well, what's the devil doing? What's his strategy? And how do we pray against it? And what are the demons doing? I don't really care, right? I'm going to focus on Jesus, and I'm going to let Jesus worry about him, right? And that's what's happening here. The Lord's not telling them this to freak them out. He's telling them to go, I know the things you don't know, and it's under my control. I've got it figured out. You didn't even know his throne was there, but I did. Again, great comfort to us, but also to them. And he continues to talk about the good things that they have done. In verse 13, it says, You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days which Antipas, my faithful martyr, was killed among you. And see, they, it's not a small thing that they've gone through. This persecution that they've faced has resulted in the death of one of their, at least a believer, possibly a leader in the church. But he, he had to lay down his life for no other reason than he followed Jesus. And so the church would be rocked by that. And, and they, even then, they didn't deny their faith. They didn't back up on the things they believed. They didn't somehow go, okay, that's, this is serious stuff. We're not going to keep talking about Jesus. Yeah, we'll go and do that little pinch of incense. We'll make everything. They didn't do any of that. Though they were pushed to deny Jesus, they had not. Even when one among them was murdered for his faith. They'd face really hard times. Um, these guys were not spiritual weaklings. These people were not lacking real-world application to their faith. They've, they've had a solid foundation. They've had a solid walk with the Lord. But even after all of those things, if we understand them, verse 14, he still says, I have a few things against you. Now, well, again, I think that the readers of that, the, the pastor of the church, you know, talks about the angel of the church is the messenger or the pastor of the church. That's where his heart would have sunk. Ah, oh, the Lord has something against us. But what I like about it is that the Lord doesn't go, hey, look, I know you guys have been through a hard time and Antipas just got killed for his faith and you guys are kind of rocked by that. And there's a few things I'd like to work on, but we'll deal with that later, right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, poor babies, and it'll be okay. He just goes, look, there's, there's some important things we need to deal with. Even though you're hurting, even though you've been facing persecution, there's still things that need to be dealt with. And to me, I just love the strength and the love that's behind that correction, right? I think sometimes we can love uh, in an incorrect way where we baby somebody so much it's, it's harmful to them. That we empower those who are harming themselves, doing wrong, or, or going the wrong direction because we're so afraid of offending. We're so afraid of hurting them. We're just like, oh, okay, yeah, you're fine. But the Lord doesn't do that. The Lord is the one to go, 
I understand, I know, I know where you dwell, I know who dwells there with you, but there's still a few things we need to talk about. I still have a few things against you. If you remember, Jesus described himself to them in verse 12 as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And we've talked about that in the beginning when John received this vision of Jesus that's just dynamic in all, the, in all of its aspects. But it's also very important because each way he's described there to John is how he identifies himself to the church. And when it came to the sword that proceeds out of his mouth, that sharp double-edged sword, it's a reference to the Word of God. And we see that in a couple places in Scripture. right? Probably the most famous is Hebrews 12, which says, For the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit. Right? There's a little difference. It's just a little thing, but I think it's also kind of important. So in Hebrews, where it talks about that double-edged sword, it's a picture of that Roman short sword. It's light, it's sharp, it's fast, it's made for close quarters combat. But the word that's used here of the double-edged sword proceeding from Jesus' mouth is a large double-edged, double-edged broadsword, right? Rather than close quarters combat, it's the idea of clearing the battlefield all at once. And the Word of God does both, Right? It cuts to our heart. It divides out the things that are of the flesh and the things that are of the spirit, but it also levels nations and it levels kingdoms. And so he describes himself to them as the one that has the sharp two-edged sword. While they've been brave, while they've not denied, they've fallen for the enemy's trick. See, the devil's first strategy was to come at them from outside, to bring that persecution and to not only inflict harm, but to kill somebody for their faith. It didn't work. The church just dug in its heels and went, nope, we're going to serve Jesus. We're not denying him. And they bound together. And so the enemy changed his strategy. Instead of using threat of harm or death, he starts a very subtle compromise. And rather than coming from the outside in, he works from the inside out. allowing wrong ideas and false teaching to come in to a weary people. And I think that's an important thing to remember. If you've gone through a long season of trial and difficulty, like 2020 would be a good example, <laughs> you tend to be a little weary. And I think it's in that state of weariness that the enemy just brings in that subtle little attack, that subtle little compromise. Yeah, things are tough but we can make them a little bit easier. And that's what's taking place here. These people have been fighting the good fight. They're worn down. They're discouraged. And maybe they're even to the point of going, well, what we're doing doesn't seem to be working. And I don't, we don't know that, but I know for me that when I've been facing that long, difficult time, I start to kind of second guess what I'm doing, going, I don't know. It seems like we're facing just one trial after the next. Maybe we need to change things up, you know? And and, and so, whatever the reason, this, this wrong teaching has made its way into the church. Actually, two specific wrong teachings have made their way in. And it's, again, important to know, and I think especially as we get to the end and, and apply this to our lives, it's important to know this is not coming from the pastor. It's not coming from the church leadership. It's not like from the pulpit or in the men's Bible study or women's Bible study, these things are being taught. 
but they are taking place within the church and they are not being dealt with. It's just that subtle little background noise, that subtle little thing that's being passed from person to person during the fellowship time. And it's, they're aware of it, but it has not been dealt with. Verse 14, he says, Because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols to commit sexual immorality. Um, we talked about how Ephesus was a church that was very solid in their doctrine, right? They knew the word of God very well, but they were lacking love. This church, Pergamos, and actually we'll see the same thing with Thyatira, is that they are a very loving church that is not very well grounded in the word. And so they're allowing all kinds of stuff to go on. Going, well, we love people. We're just going to love people the way they are. We're going to love people where they're at. And we're not going to tell people what to do. We're just going to let them be who they are. Well, that's great to a certain extent until it starts doing this, where false teaching is making its way in and they're, they're not dealing with it, right? And I think for ministry, for any church, and even for our own lives, it's one of those things, it's, it, it's a continual balancing act we have to walk because we want to meet people where they're at. We want to accept people for who they are. But we need to be listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit to know at what point we put on the brakes and what things that have come our way that we go, no, that isn't biblically true. And that's specifically what's being talked about here. Again, not just things that annoy us, not things that bother us, not things that sit weird. These are things that are biblically untrue that are being taught and that are beginning to grow like a cancer within the church. And, and honestly, we see things like this a lot today. We see large, loving churches that are not grounded very well in the Word, where pretty much anything goes. And, and they, they look towards being popular. They look towards bringing more people in and, and end up compromising in the Word of God. They want everything to be upbeat. They want to send people home happy. Never talk about anything that would be offensive. We won't talk about sin or repentance or hell. We won't talk about the cross. We'll just keep everything up, up, up and send people home happy. But I like what Paul said in Acts chapter 20. Remember, he, he was making his way, his final journey towards Jerusalem. And he stops and he calls for the elders of Ephesus. And he, he gives them this stern warning of things that were to come. But in the midst of that, he's talking about it, and he tells him in verse 27 of Acts 20, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. That's a pretty challenging thing. To go, look, I haven't held back anything from you. Everything I know, I've delivered to you in absolute completion. The good, the bad, and the ugly, all of it. That's, that's good teaching. And that should be what every church is about, what every Christian is about. I heard this uh, example years ago, and it stuck with me, that churches fall into one of two categories, that they're either battleships or cruise ships, which at a distance look very much the same, right? But battleships have a specific mission, are sent to a specific destination, Everyone has a purpose to fulfill. Everyone's role is important to 
fulfill that mission. The food's not great. The beds aren't comfortable. You are entering into risk that could, you could even lose your life in. But it is worth it for the mission's sake. Cruise ships, on the other hand, are the exact opposite. That it is about comfort. It is about entertainment. That is the mission. That is the purpose. And that's all there is. What do you want to hear? What do you want to eat? What do you want to see? We'll deliver it to you. And rather than having everybody serving one another, you end up with a few serving everybody. You end up with a church that's a mile wide and an inch deep. And it's all at the expense of teaching the Word of God. Again, it's important. These were not things being taught by the church leadership there at Pergamos. But they had made their way into the body, and they were unchecked. They weren't being dealt with. And it's very dangerous ground for a church. Now, while you look at it in verse 14, and it talks about um, putting a stumbling block before the children of Israel and eating things sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality, well, it could have been those things, but specifically, it's the doctrine of Balaam. Um, What is the doctrine of Balaam? Well, first, I think we all know at least a little bit about the story of Balaam, right? But I'll review it just in case. It's actually an incredibly sad story when you know the whole thing. So Balaam was a Gentile, wasn't part of Israel, but yet the Lord spoke to him. And he was known as a prophet. And so the king of Moab sends to Balaam and says, hey, I want you to come down here and curse Israel because they're making their way towards my kingdom. And I know if you curse them, then we'll stand a chance against them. And Balaam goes, well, we've got to pray about it first. And the Lord tells him no. And so the people leave. Then they come back and go, what if we give you even more money? He goes, well, let me pray about it again. <laughs> Which just that reveals Balaam's heart, right? He's already been told no. And then he gets a series of events that are just like one no after the next. The Lord's like, fine, you want to do it? Do it. But then on his way, there's an angel sent that's going to kill Balaam. The donkey saves his life. He gets mad at the donkey. The Lord allows the donkey to speak, which again, this is all a big no, right? The, angel, the donkey's like, you see the angel? And the angel's like, I came to kill you. It's like, at some point you think you're like, okay, I feel like this is a negative. I shouldn't be doing this. But he keeps on going and he goes and he goes to uh, the place where Balak wants him to curse Israel. Doesn't work. He can't speak the words. He only speaks blessing. And this happens three times. Again, all of that's a really big no. And at the end of that part of the story, Balaam leaves and says he he returned home. And this is where a lot of people think, oh, good for Balaam. He went home. Next events, again, I'm skipping over chapters here in Numbers, but then Balak sends out the women of Moab down to Israel. And that's where they are put as a stumbling block before the children of Israel. They eat things, sacrifice to idols, and commit, commit sexual immorality. All right? Israel repents of their sin, and they go back heading towards Moab. And when they take, the, when they take Moab and they, they capture Balak and all the princes and everybody are there together, who's right there among them? Balaam. And we find that he's the one who had the idea to send the women out and cause Israel to stumble. 
And his whole reason to do it was money. That's the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam is doing whatever you have to do to make money. To compromise the word of God, to cause other people to fall for money. It can be more than money. It's really compromising the word of God for personal gain, whatever that personal gain might be. It might be money, it might be uh, power, it might be prestige, whatever it is. It's the same principle, it's the same doctrine of Balaam. That what you do is specially done under the cloak of religion. And again, very, very common today. How many churches will compromise the word of God and they will allow sin to grow like a cancer within the body because they want more people in the seats? Because more people means more money. More popularity, more entertainment means more money. That's one of the things I love and why I, as a pastor, have chosen to go verse by verse through the Bible. Because whatever the topic is, you're going to get to it. If I just chose my pet things that I wanted to teach on, I teach on those every other week. Right? And if you listen to somebody that, that loves to talk about money, uh, even in a positive way, even to give instruction about money, and all of their Bible studies talk about money, it would make it seem like the whole Bible is about money. If you, if you wanted to talk to somebody that was really into, into marriage ministry, they can make the Bible seem like the whole thing's about marriage ministry. But when you take it verse by verse, you're going to cover every topic, and you're going to cover it in the same percentage that the Bible gives it in. You know, I've had people say, well, you like to talk about false teachers a lot. Actually, I don't. <laughs> it's just in there a lot, right? It, in the New Testament, it's over and over again. It's in almost every single of Paul's letters. And it, it just, the warning is continual about false teaching. And so for us, it is, it is a place of protection to study the Bible verse by verse to take in the whole counsel of God. It's the only way I think we can do that, right? Not just as a church, but as us, as us individually. Rather skipping around, jumping around to books or topics that I like, and just read it all. Even if that's just all the New Testament, just take in everything you can about Jesus. Amen. Let it say what it says. Take in the whole counsel of God. Again, what's taking place in Pergamos is that there are those in the church who are using the gospel for personal gain. And they are also allowing this teaching to take root. But there is another one that is also taking root. So verse seven, excuse me, verse 15 says, Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly. And I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one except him who receives it, which no one knows except him who receives it. Um we talked about the Nicolaitans at the end of looking at Ephesus. So the Nicolaitans were this cult that were on the rise. 
Uh, some church documents, not the Bible, but uh, different historians of that time, say that it was actually Nicholas, who was one of the nine talked about in Acts that started the Nicolaitans. Um, and, and there's a lot of things we don't know about them. But what we do know is enough that they were growing fast, they were being accepted, they came across like they were Christians, like they were all about the Lord and all about righteousness and holiness. Um, but just the name itself, Nicolaitan, means conqueror of the people. They loved power. They wanted to be over others. And it's the same idea or the same uh, sin that we see in the Pharisees, right? That the Pharisees and the high priests, they, they believed that they were over. In fact, they had gone to the point where they, they weren't even sinners anymore. The Nicolaitans were doing the same thing, but now they're doing it within the church, that they were above. And it's, it's the first account where we get the idea of the clergy and the laity, right? The spiritual and the unwashed masses, right? That's the idea. And so what the Nicolaitans were doing is that the leaders believed that they were above sin. In fact, sin didn't even affect them. They could sin all they wanted, and it didn't affect them because they were so spiritual and righteous. And so they were stealing and committing sexual immorality, and they were doing all these things going, yeah, but I'm a leader. It doesn't affect me. And Jesus says, that thing I hate. Again, that is no small thing when the Lord says, I hate that. Verse 15, he says, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Those that have compromised the word of God, the Lord himself is saying, I will come against them. I find it interesting that he doesn't tell the church or the church leaders, I'm going to remove your lampstand or I'm going to deal with you as a church, but he is saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to deal with them. You should deal with it first. That the judgment that was going to fall upon those who were falsely teaching and allowing this teaching to happen was going to be far worse than them just dealing with it first, repenting of it before that. And this is their warning, and it's a stern warning. But then behind that, he also gives them a great promise. See, I believe that one of maybe... It's not the only one, but it's one of the biggest draws for people to, to get caught up in cults or even within the church. They get caught up in extra biblical teaching, things that are beyond the word of God. So they'll say, oh, well, we're not compromising the word of God. This is something beyond the word of God. Well, that is compromise. It's trying to get the word to say something. It doesn't. And the draw to it is, is this desire for the secret things of the Lord. Well, the desire itself isn't bad. I mean, don't we all want the deep, secret things of the Lord? And so I like that when Jesus speaks to them, he's going, I know what you want, and I'm actually going to give it to you. But it's the reality. It's the deep things. It's the secret things that no one else knows. To him who overcomes, I give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give a white stone. Um, these are both things that speak of a very intimate relationship. So manna, you know, is the, the bread that fell from heaven while the children of Israel were out in the, in the wilderness. 
And it always speaks or is a picture of God's supernatural provision. I'm going to give you the, the provision you didn't even know about. And though it has maybe has physical sides to it, it's supernatural in its nature. You won't find it anywhere else. Anything else is a, is a copy, is a ripoff. And then he speaks of this white stone. And in this day, uh, in the Roman culture, this white stone had a couple of purposes. So if there was like a large banquet that would have taken place, like an exclusive party, to the honored guests, they'd be given a white stone. And if this, this white stone would either have their name on it or it would have the name of the host upon it. And so when you showed up to where this banquet took place, you'd uh, basically show the backstage pass, and they're like, oh, we'll step right on through, right? And you'd be given this honored seat. And so that's what this is speaking of uh, partially, but there's more to it than that because the Lord says that he's going to, on it will be written a name, a name written which no one knows except him who receives it. This fascinates me. The Lord is saying, I'm going to write your true name on it. And it's a name that has never been spoken and has never been heard. It's your name. It's not, you know, a, a generic name that's been used a bazillion times. It is your name. And again, it speaks of the intimacy the Lord has with us. That when we step into the kingdom, and again, I, I don't understand this, but I'm fascinated by it, that the idea that he's going to call each one of us individually by the name that we've always wanted to hear, but didn't even know existed. Now, again, with all of these, we can simply look at them and go, okay, well, this is interesting history. It's interesting stuff about that church. How does this apply to us? So what does this look like? Well, we get a really good picture of what this looks like as a church. But what does it look like when it comes to a family or a marriage or an individual? Um, I think this one's hard because it is very, very subtle. And it's all on the inside. I think maybe the best examples, and again, for a marriage, if that's what we're looking at as the example. This is a marriage that looks great. Man, hard times hit. They stand together. They stand on the Lord. They're, they're solid. They don't compromise in the hard times. But when things get easy, things change. And again, not that they're teaching these things, not that they're you know, giving up on the Word of God or teaching the Word of God falsely, but they are turning their ear to those who do. To me, this, I think a great example is that really bad friend that constantly gives bad advice. The one that's like, oh, you don't need to be married to them. Why are you put up with that? Why are you working at that job and dealing with those people? You could have freedom. You just need to lighten up a bit, little bit. Quit following the word like it's you know, the law. Just you know, lighten up that friend. You ever had that friend? And you're just giving ear to them just a little bit. And those little seeds of discontent are going in and they're finding places to start to grow. There isn't an immediate effect. There isn't something that takes place right away. And we go, oh, there's the problem. It's that we've just compromised a little bit. We've started to listen to somebody's opinion more than we're listening to the Word of God in maybe just one or two little areas. 
And it will erode the very foundation that our life is built upon if we leave it unchecked. It's a serious warning. Again, I think family, marriage, individual, man, you hold fast to his word. You've kept focus. But we need to remember and come back that he is the one with a sharp two-edged sword. His word is eternal. Nothing else is. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Man, his word is the only thing that keeps us safe. It's the only thing we can count on time and time again. And we've got to continually be coming back to it and not allowing those little seeds of discontentment to be coming in wherever they might come in from. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. Give us ears to hear that you would apply these things to our lives, that you'd show us those areas that maybe we're, we're letting bad counsel or bad ideas or whatever it might be where those little seeds of compromise and discontent are coming in. Lord, show us where they are that we might shut them off and that we might tune in more to your word, to your promises, and to your faithfulness. Pray that you would have your way in us and just work these things out in our life over this next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.